It feels right that our first episode of 2020 is really just a look back at 2019. I mean, you know what they say, hindsight is 2020. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about their personal connection to a current or classic release, dot, 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 usually. Because this is our first episode of 2020, I apologize for taking a couple of weeks off. Uh, it's just needed time to kind of recalibrate what the, the show was going to look like going forward. Honestly, just for myself personally to take a break. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, it, you know, I, it makes sense for this to be slightly delayed because it ends up sort of feeding into each other because we are going to be talking about my favorite movies of 2019. So it was just kind of basically starting the machine up again. Uh, I have a lot of cool uh, episodes planned, not quite recorded yet, but planned and uh, on the schedule in the, you know, not in, uh, in the books, but coming soon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and yeah, so I, this felt like a good break to, uh, sort of kick off kind of the second season of this format, this version of the podcast going forward, which I did, I did the, the shift over, uh, with the new format in, uh, December of 2018. So essentially grandfathered into 2019's year and, um, yeah, so this is this is a good way to just kind of start that off again. I will be posting episodes weekly again, as I mentioned, but I'm going to be shifting those over to Wednesday just because I feel like, yeah, it, it fits better with my current schedule and I want to make sure I can stay top, on top of getting things posted on a weekly basis and not have multiple weeks where, you, you know, you all are like, where the hell did Rob go? What? what? I, need, I need my crooked table fix. Um, so we will be putting a new episode of it every Wednesday going forward for 2020, uh, again, to doing, uh, for the most part, our normal format, but there will be some crooked commentaries in there, there will be some special episodes like this one, maybe some solo ones with me being like, can you believe this? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but for the most part, I'm going to try and stick to our regular format, talking about current or classic releases uh, based on the guest choice. So for the most part, that's going to be what we're going to be doing going forward with sporadic uh, special episodes and um, and the like. So without any further delay, I want to just go right into my favorite films of 2019. There was actually a lot of really great movies this year. You hear all the time people say, oh, movies are dead. Good, You know, there's no good movies anymore. It's all on television. And yeah, I guess that, you know, I'm much more of a, obviously, a movie guy than a TV guy. So I'll have to take, you know, y'all's word for that that, that uh, TV is, in fact, the, where it's at, because I'm honestly not watching that much of it. It's hard enough for me as it is to keep up with movies, let alone television. So I found a lot of really great movies in 2019. Uh, I'm not even going to get to all of them, but here are some of the ones. Well, I'll, I'll save the honorable mentions for the last. So coming in at number 10, this was actually kind of hard to do a top 10. There were a few that I really wanted in there, have in there. Um, if you listen to the Cinemaholics podcast episode where they did their uh, their top 10 of 2019, I actually did record a, uh, a voicemail for my favorite movie of last year on there. I did present my top 10, which has now changed a little bit. 
uh, mostly because I did get to see a certain Oscar-nominated movie uh, late in the game and was able to squeeze it onto this revised version of my list. Uh, I think I may have even kind of moved a couple things around. I want to also point out that these are 100% subjective. This is my experience. I do call it my favorite films of 2019 for a reason. I don't necessarily think that anyone really has the the wherewithal to say, these are the best films. It's the best picture. I mean, that's what they call the Oscar category, but ultimately it is all very subjective to what works for you, what you connect with. It's why when I have guests on this show, I have them talk about their personal connection to a current or classic release because they selected the movie and I usually ask them why they selected the movie, what is it about it that spoke to them and why to them it's special and worthy of, of uh, you know deeper analysis. So that going, you know, before we get started, I want to make sure that that is very clear. Also, I haven't seen everything. There's a few Oscar-nominated movies I still haven't seen. There's a lot of smaller movies that I didn't get to see. If I went on my, well, let's do that real fast. If I go on my watch list on Letterboxd, which are the movies mostly from 2019 that I have not seen yet, I still have to catch The Two Popes. I still have to catch Blinded by the Light, Waves, High Flying Bird, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I'm, I'm dying to see that, Queen and Slim, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, Pain and Glory is actually, I missed it in theaters here briefly. It's coming to Redbox very soon, so I will be seeing that before the Oscars. Uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, Fighting with My Family, The Souvenir. These are just a few of the ones that I have not gotten a chance to see uh, just yet. The Nightingale, which I was, I think, playing here for like two seconds. Um, so I, I, you know, this is not all inclusive. There are obviously movies that had I seen them prior to making this list, probably would have made this list. So don't hold that against me if your favorite movie is not listed here or assume that it meant I didn't like it because there's a very good chance I just haven't seen it yet. Uh, so if that's the case, definitely drop me a line on Twitter at Crooked Table and let me know what your favorite movie of 2019 was and uh, you know why I should check it out. You could also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all that other good stuff to hear what I thought of uh, some of the other films we've talked about over the year. And uh, listen to last year's top uh, top 10 episode to see what I thought about the films of 2018. So all that being said, number 10, I put at number 10, Rocket Man, uh, directed by Dexter Fletcher with Taron Egerton, robbed of an Oscar nomination, but we'll get to that later, uh, as Elton John. I really like this movie. It's, it, it felt like it, this is a genre that has been done about 400 million times, and I've never seen it done this way. It felt so intimate and personal. And, uh, you know, as Elton John famously said, he's like, he wanted pushing for the movie to be R rated because he hasn't lived a PG 13 life. And I think everything that this movie does right is everywhere. Everything that, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody does wrong in my opinion. Uh, and ironically, Dexter Fletcher stepped in for, uh, Brian Singer, uh, on Brian Bohemian Rhapsody once he was fired from that project. So they do have that connection in common, which is kind of funny. Uh, but I think you really see what Dexter Fletcher can do with a film when he's actually in charge from the beginning. Uh, when he has an actor like Taron Egerton in, the, in the, the lead role, and when he has, you know, the, the boldness to tell a, a more raw version of the story at hand. I think, you know, you get a lot of Elton, you get a lot deeper into Elton John's uh, mindset and his psychosis in this movie than you do with Freddie Mercury and Bohemian Rhapsody and 
it's just really disappointing for me that this movie did not make one the money or two the uh, the awards did not receive the awards that Bohemian Rhapsody did because I think it's a much much more successful film than that is and uses Elton John's music in a, a very creative way to tell the story and has kind of some imagery and moments in it that felt very uh, sort of surreal kind of reminded me of across the universe in a certain way I'm thinking specifically of the the title track sequence with Rocket Man um, just great movie all all around and one that I look forward to continuing to revisit over the years number nine I had parasite now to be fair I think this would have been higher on my list had I not seen it with so much hype from film Twitter saying, oh, it's amazing, oh, better prepare yourself, and all that other stuff. I will say, I'm not going to say anything about the uh, premise of the film. I didn't know anything about the premise of the film going in. I had seen the little gif, uh, you know, with the with the quote hand, fingers, and, and that, whole, that whole thing. I had seen some, like, gif, rea- like, GIF reactions shots, basically from the movie itself. But I didn't, and I knew Bong Joon-ho did it. I had seen Snowpiercer before that, so I knew he had sort of a an offbeat, to put it mildly, um, sensibility. But I had no idea what the story was. I had no idea about the big twists that were in store. So I really enjoyed this movie. And my first thought going into it was, and this will be a little bit telling about both the remaining, uh, the remainder of my top ten, as well as my Oscars uh, reaction to the nominations. Um, about it felt. Like it was kind of doing everything the Joker thought it was doing, as far as the class system, as far as how it affects the uh, the lower status people in a society, um, and kind of the the parasitic relationship between the two, and how the haves and the have-nots uh, affect each other. And this is another major theme this year in a lot of different movies, and I think Parasite is one of the best to uh, to illustrate that and to get that conversation started and. I, I'm really, you know, I'm really heartened by the response that it's gotten from the Academy. I'm hoping that Parasite comes out with some major wins there. So I guess we'll uh, have to stay tuned and see what happens there. Ironically enough, number eight, Us from Jordan Peele, is also very similar uh, thematically to Parasite. There's a lot of the same class struggle thing that I just said uh, at play here with a incredible, an incredible, uh, immersive dual performance by Lupita Nyong'o, who, again, just like Taron Egerton, should have gotten an Oscar nomination. But again, we're getting ahead of things. Uh, I really, really, really liked Us. And again, I think I have not seen it since I saw it in theaters at screening. Um, but I I really love the, the way in which Peel... He he sets up this mystery. He gets into the 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 you know the, the nitty gritty of what's at hand, but without ever really revealing what's going on. Like, and I I, I like that. I think he he's land, he's figured out just the right balance of what to reveal, what what hand, what part of it, how much of his hand to show, and how much to keep behind closed doors. Uh, initially that was an element of the movie that really kind of annoyed me. And I came out being like, I don't know. I think Get Out is better. I still think Get Out is a superior film. Uh, but, you know, carried by the strength of the performances, of uh, some of the the visuals, the score, the, the amazing use of I Put a Five on it, uh, or I Got Five on it. Sorry, I can't believe I got that wrong. Um, 
it really strong sophomore effort from Jordan Peele, and he's shaping up to be one of the most interesting filmmakers working today. I mean, he clearly has something to say with every movie. In Get Out, it was more about race, and here it's more about class. And he gets such dynamic performances out of his actors. So I'm really excited to revisit this, probably with Kai, much to her chagrin. Uh, she's not really into horror stuff. But um, yeah, I, I really look forward to watching it again and digging into it. Uh, just kind of, like I said, been waiting to, to uh, bring this one on the wife. Number seven, The Farewell. Lulu Wang did, this is such a, a tender, beautiful, uh, kind of bittersweet comedy slash drama about family, about culture. Aquafina is is doing some amazing, understated work here. Xu uh, Zhen Zhao, again, as Nai Nai in this movie, does an, an incredible job. Everything just feels real. Uh, everything just feels real and relatable. And I think the power in that is that the more specific your story is about a specific, uh, you know, a more personal, it, it, more personal place it's coming from, the more specific the situation, the circumstances, the culture in this case are, I think, the, the more universal it feels in a way because the more tangible it is. And this is something I got in, in depth with uh, Sade Glover of the Offscreen Babble podcast on. You can listen to the episode on The Farewell on that. And we had a, a great time talking for about an hour about The Farewell and how beautiful it is and how, how important its message is about like, you never know how much time you're going to have. You never, you know, never, you never know what life is going to bring. And, and, and um, just the, the, the themes of identity and culture and where those intersect and how they in, inform one another. I just, I, I thought Lulu Wang did an amazing job with this movie and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does next. Uh, and Aquafina, who, who knew that Aquafina could pull this out of thin air? I mean, she was like that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, boisterous comedic presence in Crazy Rich Asians and in Ocean's 8. And here she is just being very quiet and very, you know, internal. And, and it's, it's an incredible performance. Again, one that should have gotten nominated for an Oscar, but we'll get there. Number six, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. I think this is a little spoiler for the rest of my list. I think it's very telling that after the Star Wars The Last Jedi, the controversial uh, entry in that franchise from Ryan Johnson, the next Ryan Johnson movie makes my top 10 of that of the, the same year where the Star Wars movie, the follow-up to The Last Jedi, comes out and does not. So read into that whatever you will. I, I am a major Last Jedi supporter and Ryan Johnson at this point. And there's a lot of filmmakers that just in the last couple of years have really come out and really blown me away and all of a sudden become some of my favorite directors. I think Jordan Peele is on there. I think um, I think Ryan Johnson's on there. There's another one or two left on this list that I don't want to reveal just yet. But this was a, a whodunit, but from a very specific perspective. I think Ryan Johnson, if you watch any of his movies, and I've written about this before, I think on CheatSheet.com and the like, um, any of his movies are really about de deconstructing a genre. So Looper is a time travel movie, but from a very, from a, from a, like a, a different type of time travel movie. And uh, The Brothers Bloom is like a con man slash heist movie, but it isn't. There's like a, there's twists in it and there, 
there's elements in it that are really kind of making the audience question question the genre itself, the conventions that make up this genre. I think you see that in Brick. I think you see that a lot in The Last Jedi. And I think that's why a lot of people balked at what The Last Jedi was doing. The Last Jedi was making you face, well, what do you think a Star Wars movie is? This is what a Star Wars movie is? Well, what if we just strip that away? Now what? Now what's a Star Wars movie turned into when you take away the big bad, when the hero that you thought was going to swoop in and save everyone doesn't swoop in and save everyone and then kind of does swoop in and save everyone. Uh, and it does a wonderful job of of having people, on, keeping keeping the audience on their toes and not letting them know what to expect. And Knives Out does that very much so, where there's a murder mystery set up, kind of answered, then not really. And it, it just has a very... Uh, a very playful structure to it. Uh, I think uh, Ryan Johnson, who got an Oscar nomination for this script, his first Oscar nomination, well-deserved in my opinion, um, it does such a great job infusing a sort of satire into it, but without verging into parody land. There, this movie, you, you know, you still take it seriously. You still, you know, care about uh, the main character, Marta, played by Ana de Armas. Um, you still question the motives of the family, but it's all like from a, a more relaxed, uh, less self-serious place. And I think that makes the movie that much more enjoyable to watch. I think Chris Evans is a blast in this movie. Daniel Craig, uh, Tony Collette, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon. Everyone in this movie has moments to shine. And it's just, it's just a really fun, crowd-pleasing movie. I think it's one of the ones that you know, there's there are some selections on this list that people are like, well, that was boring or that was offensive or whatever. And I think Knives Out is one instance where it, it's kind of the four quadrant movie that would please just about everybody. And um, I, I had I had so much fun with it. I'm so excited that it sounds like Ryan Johnson's going to do another Benoit Blanc mystery uh, in the next, you know, probably a couple of years or whatever. So very, very excited by that. And that this movie turned out to be a huge hit because it does sort of validate people like me who loved what he did with Last Jedi and thought all the hate was completely undeserved. And, um, you know, you know, seeing him, his continued success, I think, was, was, uh, was very, very exciting for me. Number five, Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde and her feature film debut, starring Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein. I really like teen movies. I, I don't know what it is. I know... Kai uh, specifically has, obviously, we've talked about Clueless. Um, she really likes Mean Girls and 10 Things I Hate About You. A lot of the movies from teen movies from the 90s that, you know, we grew up with. Uh, I think there's something about that coming of age period, specifically from a female perspective, because I've noticed this about my top 10 list. Last year, I had eighth grade on there. I think the year or two before that, I had um, The Edge of 17. There's something about telling the, these teenage coming-of-age stories from a female perspective that really oddly resonates with me. And I think Booksmart touches on the themes of growing up, the themes of, you know, being caught between uh, childhood and adulthood, feeling like you want to belong to a certain clique, uh, feeling like you need to take advantage of your youth and friendship and all that good stuff, but with a really, really funny script, with two really strong performances, with a filmmaker behind it who... Amazingly, it, it, you know, not not amazingly, just, just surprisingly, because who knew that she could do this on her first movie, uh, has such a confident hand driving the whole thing. And the ensemble cast here, su- supporting cast, is 
is everyone is just so pitch perfect, uh, especially Billy Lord, who I think is is a riot in this movie. Um, it's just really satisfying and very emotional at times and very true. And um, yeah, it's it was my favorite, I guess, spoilers for the rest of this year. It's one of my favorite comedies of the year. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, I think it, it deserved more love at the box office. I think it deserved more love at the in the awards circles. So I am very excited to see what the two actresses do next, what Olivia Wilde's next project will be, because I thought Booksmart was an astounding uh, debut for Wilde. And I really love the, the characters. It's just really, it's something about the friendship there, the little details in the friendship, the little like inside jokes that only you understand. And like I said, the ensemble supporting cast it, everyone is completely hitting their marks. And that's a huge thing in a comedy. Like one of my favorite comedies also is The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I think it's because you have such a strong su supporting cast in place. You have Elizabeth Banks, you have Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen and Jane Lynch and all these character actors um, who, who, who create the world and the uh, atmosphere for the the main story. So that the, you know, in this film, Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein are the heart of the movie. So you, but you have this backdrop of all these quirky characters and like everybody coming from their own, um, you know, everybody has a story. And, and in high school, I think that's more true than perhaps ever because everyone is trying to figure out their shit and they're trying to figure out who they are. And I think this movie captures that in a way that that felt very real to me. Uh, so Booksmart, obviously, if you've seen it, you know it's great. If you haven't seen it, why not? Why have you not seen it? Go and check it out. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. So go go find that. Number four, I have 1917. This is the one I alluded to earlier that came on my list out of nowhere and uh, swooped into number four. I, I only saw it, I think, a couple, a couple few days, I think, after I submitted the list to Cinemaholics. Sam Mendes coming off of Spectre, which was a mess of a movie. Um, you know, Oscar winner for Best Director two decades ago for American Beauty, which we've talked about on this podcast. Did uh, Skyfall, which again we talked about on this podcast. So clearly a gifted filmmaker. And coming from, you know, from my perspective, I'm not a fan of war movies. It's just not my thing. I you know I've seen some of the big ones, Saving Private Ryan and things like that. But it's not... It's not a genre that particularly appeals to me. So when I heard that this was coming out in 1917, I'm like, okay, whatever. It's a war movie. Cool. That's fine. Sam Mendes was behind it. I was like, oh, okay. I don't know if that's going to be worth my time. And like, I mean, Sam Mendes is a good filmmaker, but not really into war movies. So I need a little more incentive than that to put this as like a priority to see. And, um, and then I started hearing about the one take uh, conceit. I was like, okay, that's a little more interesting. I can get down with that. I really like, you know, I really, I'm a defender. I know a lot of people on film Twitter, this is very divisive, but I'm a defender of Birdman. I think Birdman is, is a really, is a really interesting movie. Uh, so that part of it started to pique my interest. And then when it got nominated for all the Golden Globes and then won for, I believe, Best Director and Best Motion Picture Drama, that's when I was like, okay. I need to go see this now, I guess. I, I This needs to happen. And of course, that was right around the time that the film hit theater. So I made sure, knowing it was this big spectacle movie, uh, knowing that it was, you know, very immersive as far as the way as, it was, as far as the way Roger Deakins shot it, 
as far as the way that, uh, you know, the sound and everything was designed, I made it a point to see that in theaters uh, rather than on, you know, a screener or something like that. I made it a point to check it out, not wait till it came out um, on Blu-ray. And it was really good. It was great. I was totally wrapped up in the, in the, uh, in the story. Uh, George McKay is, is a phenomenal in this movie. It, it, and the fact that it is, I think what makes it work for me is that yes, it's a movie set in World War One, and yes, it's you know it is following soldiers during that battle and et cetera during that war, et cetera. But it's not, it's not about a battle. It's not about it's not about you know a, a battalion of soldiers invading you know Nazi occupied France or or whatever. It's two men, soldiers on a mission to get from point A to point B and all the shit that they encounter on the way and the difficulties of navigating uh, this space in in the midst of World War One. So World War One, in a way, yes, the, the characters are obviously involved in it, they're soldiers, but in a way, it's more of a backdrop to a much more personal mission of you have to get from here to here to, to you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to say anything about the, the movie, just go see it. But... Um, I think that that the fact that it was so focused on these two people in the midst of World War One, I, I think that's what really that's what really sold me on it. It wasn't necessarily a war movie in the conventional sense. So all the talk is that 1917, Parasite, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are kind of in neck and neck for Best Picture, which again we'll get to later. I'll be fine with that if 1917 uh, wins Best Picture because. I, I think it is a, an interesting movie, I think, from a message standpoint. And again, I'm kind of tipping my hat on the Oscars part of this episode a little too much. Uh, I think Parasite makes a more interesting statement and, again, is more representative of the themes and what's on people's minds right now. But uh, 1917, totally worthy of all that praise. Uh, much to my surprise, a very, very strong uh, you know, addition to to the war genre specifically and and Sam Mendes, you know, from filmography. I think after Spectre, it was very critical that he line up something special for his next movie. And I think this one definitely does it. Number three, we have Marriage Story. So I'll tell Charlie what's happening and Cassie, you then hand him the envelope. I just get nervous. Can you unserve? What do you mean? Like take it back? Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Dreamer! Charlie Bird! <laughs> Mom! <laughs> Mom! What? You know, most people in my business, you just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> you remind me of myself on my second marriage. Dry your hair again? No, this is me. You don't like it? Is it shorter? I prefer it longer, but... How are you doing? I've been notoriously kind of mm, on Noah Baumbach. I saw While We're Young a few years ago, and I was really kind of underwhelmed by that movie. Uh, and I liked Adam Driver's performance in it. I mean, I've been a fan of his... I never watched Girls, but I, I really took notice of him in a movie called This Is Where I Leave You from 2014, which is based on the book by Jonathan Tropper that is one of my favorite authors. So I really, I, you know, I think he's a, tr a tremendously talented actor. And I think that this movie 
knowing a little bit about where Noah Baumbach is coming from, obviously, uh, he, you know, he suffered a divorce himself and, and, you know, he's bringing a lot of his personal experience to this story. And what makes marriage story so, so great, I think, is how both sides are represented. And I've seen, you know, I've listened to, I've seen the arguments on Twitter, including today. Uh, I've seen, I, I, you know, I've heard podcasts where people sort of debate their reads of the movie. And it feels like everybody has a different take on, well, the movie's on his side. Well, no, no, the movie's on her side. And this person demonizes, demon, demonizes this person. And it makes this person look like a saint. And, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I think everybody kind of brings their own experience to it. And I'm I don't think you necessarily need to be married to to appreciate the movie, but if you ha- are married, like as I am, obviously, I think you you see a lot of really harsh truths in here. I think when you're in any kind of long relationship, especially a, a romantic relationship, but if you're in a long you know a long relationship or a marriage or anything like that, uh, I think you do start to see when you anyone you're in clo- that close of proximity with for an extended period of time, you do start to see elements of bitterness, of resentment, of uh, like the, the, these clear emotions that you once felt for a person get can get complicated. And if you don't vocalize that, if you don't express those, uh, those emotions, if you don't um, let them out and, uh, and kind of process them in the right way, I think they can sort, sort of eat away at the core of who you are as a person of where that relationship came from. And I thought Marriage Story did a lovely job of illustrating the the sort of freedom that comes with divorce in a way, but also like the the sadness that, uh, you know, that, that there was this bond, there was this love and it's fallen apart and how it gets, you know, ripped to, to, you know, shredded to ribbons in the whole, in the whole divorce process. And I think, Adam Driver's character and Scarlett Johansson's character. I think feel like in this, my kind of overall read is that it does fall more on her side. Is my for those of you listening and kind of wondering where I land on it, I feel like it does. A, the movie does a pretty good job at expressing both of their perspectives and uh, how obviously all these you know this kind of thing is always a, you know a give and take and partially his fault, partially her fault. Like everybody is kind of allowing this these things to happen so regardless which one is doing the damage the other one is complicit in it or contributing to the damage in their own way and I think um, I think the movie kind of does a pretty good job at balancing those two sides granted ultimately I feel like it leans more on on uh, Scarlett Johansson's side just with the way that uh, Charlie's character ends up in the film she's uh, she's obviously in a you know more positive light by the end of the film, but I, I, I you know as a portrait of a marriage, as a character study of uh, this dynamic between these two characters, I think Noah Baumbach does an exceptional job with this movie, and it it kind of annoys me that its Oscar chances are sort of slipping by a little bit. I think that the one fight scene got like memed to death to death a little bit too much. Uh, I think they're both incredible in, it. and I think you know when you have when you have that kind of intense relationship and that in in that high pressure situation, you are going to be heightened. I mean, I don't think I think that the movie makes it clear that neither of those characters have ever fought to this level before. Um, and I think it, 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 the two performances are amazing. And we'll get a, we'll get to this in a, in a second, obviously. But 
Scarlett Johansson had such an incredible year uh, in 2019, and I think Marriage Story is probably one of the best performances of her career. Same for Driver. I think Laura Dern is great in it. I don't, I don't know. I don't really think 100% I want to see her win for that performance necessarily, uh, just because it feels like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like an Oscar-winning performance to me. Uh, but, you know, it, it, Laura Dern is a great actress. If that's what they want to give it to her for, the Oscars are notorious for makeup awards, uh, Al Pacino's for Sense of a Woman, uh, Renee Zellweger's Chicago Oscar that she got for Cold Mountain, um, things like that. So I think that happens a lot. And if that's the case, then, you know, I, it's a necessary evil, I suppose. Moving into number two, another Scarlett Johansson movie, Avengers Endgame. did exactly what he said he was going to do. He wiped out 50% of all living creatures. We lost. All of us. We lost friends. We lost family. We lost a part of ourselves. This is the fight of our lives. This is going to work, Steve. I know it is. Because I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't. Uh, if you listen to our episode on that, you heard me get super into talking about this movie. You heard Kai cry over Captain America's storyline. Uh, I love this movie to pieces. And it is right now January 2020. That movie came out in April 2019. And I'm still talking about it. To Kai on a regular basis. I'm still listening to the score. I'm still, uh, you know, moved to tears whenever I like watch certain scenes or think about certain things. It's a, I think it gets written off a lot because it is a comic book movie and because it did make like a bazillion dollars and it is the highest grossing movie uh, in worldwide of all time. But for a movie that is the 22nd film in a franchise that has built off of the storyline for so long, I think it does an incredible job of of uh, illustrating why these characters matter, why these stories matter, the sort of mythic quality to them. I think it balances the ensemble really well. I think it brings um, Iron Man and Captain America storylines, which obviously, looking back in the 22 movies as a whole, they are the two leads of this franchise. I, I think it, it ends them both perfectly. There are little nitpicks here and there that I could say like, well, the Thor storyline, like there were like uh, the fat jokes I could have done without the cheese whiz thing. And yes, you know, there are certain, there's should there, the whole um, 70s uh, detour is very convenient so that Robert Downey Jr.'s character can uh, have a little uh, catharsis, I can't even talk, catharsis, I'm going to have a sip of water, uh, in the middle of the movie and kind of shoehorn that character beat in there. But I also think that's earned after over a decade of these movies. I think, call it fan service, whatever you want. That Portals moment at the end, uh, all of the, um, the, the way Captain America's story, the last shot of the movie, incredible. If you had told anybody in 2000, whatever, pre-2008, that there would be an entire interconnected universe of Marvel characters and 
when they get to this epic sequence with Thanos and everything, that it's going to end in the, the way that it does. No spoilers for those of you who are living under a rock and haven't seen Avengers Endgame yet. Such a beautiful moment. Probably my favorite. This is Okay, this is by far my favorite movie in the MCU by a, a significant margin. I also really love Black Panther, obviously, as you heard last year. And Endgame was very close to my number one just because I... I think it ha- it's one of those movies that has has it all for me. And I, there are so many moments there I get uh, that I get the feels that I think are funny, that I think are powerful or like cheering moments. I have spent more time than I would like to admit on YouTube watching uh, watching like bootlegged filmed versions of the movie and people's theatrical experiences and watching people react, hearing people react rather when um, when the you know the. Mjolnir moment happens or when, uh, you know, somebody shows up or whatever. And it, it, it is it now I never, it never gets old. And I really love Avengers Endgame. So that's why it made number two. Number one, drum roll, another, yet another, I should preface Scarlett Johansson movie. I don't know how this happened that Scarlett Johansson was in three, my three favorite movies of 2019. Because I'm pretty sure she's never been in my favorite of anything ever, really. Uh, maybe the Avengers. I really like the, the 2012 Avengers. And I'm looking forward to Black Widow, but I did not care for Lucy. I did not. There's like a lot of ScarJo stuff that I either haven't seen, like Ghost in the Shell, or think is fine. So I'm as surprised as anybody that Jojo Rabbit is my favorite movie of 2019. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Was? Of course you can. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids? To burn some books. You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler, I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. You know how I just said about the feels and the funny and all that. I get. All of that from Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi, written by Taika Waititi, who, again, like Ryan Johnson, like Jordan Peele, is somehow become one of my favorite directors working today. I, I think the premise of a, you know, what is he, 10, I guess, 10-year-old boy in Germany who's sort of idolizing Adolf Hitler and really wants to become a Nazi, that is problematic on the surface, and I think the movie does such a delicate job of handling that and delving into so many themes uh, involving, you know, the way that people are are indoctrinated to that kind of uh, that kind of hateful thinking and that kind of ideology to to the the relationship between uh, between JoJo played by Roman Griffin Davis, who's Incredible in this movie, and it, it, it again should have been in more conversations uh, Oscar wise. Uh, the relationship between him and his mom, 
The performance is here by, uh, or played by Scarlett Johansson, I should say. The performance is here by Thomas and McKenzie. It is incredible. The three of them are the heart and soul of this movie, and I think bring so much, uh, so much emotion to it. Like I was interested to see this movie because I was, a, I'm a fan of YTTs in general. Uh, I did like, I do really like what we do in the shadows. I do really like Hunt for the Wilder People. I do really like Thor Ragnarok. So I was obviously curious to to see how he was going to handle this kind of World War II Nazi satire, which felt very producers, uh, Mel Brooks producers esque. So I um, I was still blown away by how he manages to pull this off. It's like there's this thing that I say every once in a while about. Uh, how a movie pulls something off that like doesn't feel like it should be possible. Like I, I, I tend to be, I tend to just kind of be like, it, it feels like a magic trick that this movie exists. I felt like that with the Avengers in 2012, the way that it creates these characters, the relationships and brings all these franchises together in a way that doesn't feel like possible. Like how, how did, how did Joss Whedon pull that off? And I kind of feel like that about Jojo Rabbit in the same way, like that Taika Waititi has a World War II movie, another war movie on my list that's not really a war movie, um, and he manages to make the Nazis uh, kind of buffoons, but also, uh, you know, also respects the uh, the danger that they pose, the the you know the the damage in that regime, and like the catastrophic. Uh, the catastrophic death toll that they were responsible for, and and it it both pokes fun at Hitler, but also kind of demonizes him at the same time. And I and I know that some people, you know, some people say that the movie is too sympathetic towards the Nazis. I think specifically the Sam Rockwell character, and I kind of see that, but I think it's also, I mean, it's not like. It's on the their, it's on the Nazis' side. If anything, I think this movie has less issue with that than something like Three Billboards. Uh, none of them are necessarily redeemed in this movie. So they're actually fairly, for the most part, unapologetic about their belief system. But I, I found so much... like The way that YTT finds humor in uh, these, this kind of harrowing environment, it reminded me a lot of something like Life is Beautiful as well, which... Again, similarly, similarly is in World War II involves a small child and has sort of a, a weirdly funny sensibility to it. Uh, I watched this. Uh, I, I have I received a screener from uh, online film critic society for this movie, and I watched it at home with Kai, and, and she loved it too. And I again got emotional just as much the second time as I did the first time. I think YTT ha- is telling stories like no one else really today. I think Scarlett Johansson deservingly received an Oscar nomination for this movie. I remember coming out and being like, shit, fuck, like ScarJo was really good in this. Um, and I, I just, it's just such a beautiful message that the movie sends by the end. Uh, it's the kind of movie that when I leave, I feel inspired not only to be creative, but also to be a better person, to, to, uh, to spread positivity, to, to focus on the good uh, within you know within myself and others and I think the, you know it was marketed as an anti-hate satire and I 100% feel that I think right now everyone is so divisive about everything including Jojo Rabbit ironically enough 
and I, and I think it, it really, this movie is really about coming together, looking past our differences and pointing out just how st- stupid it is for us to treat each other differently because of our, our culture, our creed or, or, or whatever may, you know, our race, whatever the case may be, our orientation. And I think that's really at the heart of Jojo Rabbit and a big part of why it's my favorite movie of 2019. Um, it, so so many movies I really wanted to include in this top 10. So let me just run through some of the other ones that I really liked. Uh, I will stand by Glass. I liked Glass a lot. And I thought Glass was pretty fun. Uh, the Kid Who Would Be King, completely overlooked uh, movie from last year. Family movie from like January, February. Uh, Honey Boy, great movie with Shia LaBeouf and Noah Jupe. Very interesting film. Again, didn't quite make my list, but it was it was really... It, it, it's an interesting one. Um, Little Monsters with Lupita Nyong'o again. Uh, Alita Battle Angel. I know a lot of people love that. I have to see it again. I kind of turned off by the fact that people are so, like obsessed with it. Uh, Happy Death Day to you. I talked about Happy Death Day on the Off Screen Babble podcast, actually. So go listen to that to hear my thoughts on the original Happy Death Day. Uh, Captain Marvel. Really like that film. Not the top Marvel film of this year, obviously. Long Shot, one of the best rom-coms of the year. The Peanut Butter Falcon, very powerful indie. Uh, need to rewatch that. Maybe talking about it on an upcoming episode at some point. Uh, Good Boys was pretty fun. Just wanted to give that a minor shout out. Shazam, I really liked. Uh, let's see. John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. Possibly the best of the franchise, but it's hard to gauge since they kind of all rolled together at this point. You heard me talk about the John Wick franchise on the episode uh, with John Cohorn. Just recently finally caught up with The Lighthouse. What the fuck? Crazy movie. Really good. Uh, I have to talk about uh, as a sort of sidebar on an upcoming episode. But again, stay tuned for that. Uh, Let's see here. Toy Story 4, not the best of the franchise. Probably the weakest of the franchise. But still much better than it had any right to be. Crawl, set in Florida. Very accurate depiction of the weather and how it sucks in this state uh, much of the time. Definitely check that out if you haven't seen that. One of Tarantino's favorite movies of 2019. Ready or Not, another, like Crawl, very underrated, sort of lower budget uh, horror thriller. This one with more of a comedic edge. Samara Weaving is everything. She's so, so much fun in that movie. And I saw someone on Twitter recently say that, well, Yugo Weaving doesn't not going to be in Matrix 4, then just get Samara. And I was like, that would be amazing. I would be all about that. Um, scary movies to tell in the dark. Really scary for a, air quotes, children's horror film, uh, but really solid nonetheless. It Chapter 2 almost made my top 10. It was in there when I gave it to Cinemaholics, and then I saw 1917, and I was like, well, Pennywise, sorry. Uh, but I, I, it's one of those, one of the movies that there were a couple this year where people really loved and I was like, eh, not feeling it. Uh, we'll get to those when we get to the Oscar thing. But It Chapter 2, I felt like one of, one of the films this year where I was like, that was really great. And then everyone was like, no, it's not. And, I, you know, I, I'm in the minority supporting that, unfortunately. So I uh, really liked It Chapter 2. I thought it was a great follow-up to the first one. Uncut Gems, I'm not really endorsing it. I don't even really know if I liked it, but I just felt like I should mention it because a lot of people really love Uncut Gems. Uh, I think it's an interesting, well-made movie, but I don't think it's for me uh, because I was not com- not 
very it was a very unpleasant viewing experience. I think Adam Sandler gave a great performance, but I think his character is kind of awful throughout the whole movie. Uh, Ford v Ferrari, great movie, uh, a little bit long in my opinion, but um, I think that Christian Bale is great always, and I, I really like the the story that James Mangold is telling there. So uh, very highly recommended Ford v Ferrari, justifiably nominated for a lot of Oscars. Or several Oscars. Hustlers almost made my top ten. Was probably like twelve uh, out of my uh, of my twenty nineteen movies. Jennifer Lopez should have been up for stuff. Constance Wu should have been up for stuff. Great script. Great most things. Uh, definitely recommended. Definitely go check that out. Very excited to see what Lorene Scafaria does after that. Dolomite is my name. Eddie Murphy doing some great, great, great quality work there. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob. Reboot. Saw this at one of uh, Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob uh, road shows, and he's just so much fun to to see, to watch him and talk about his movies. He's so passionate about movies in general, obviously most specifically his own. And I really got, I really thought this movie, well, maybe not quite as good as you know some of his other recent, like you know, recent is in two thousands. Uh, I I don't know if it's. I don't know if I'd put it, I might put it above Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, but I have to see it in a more uh, a more objective environment. Doctor Sleep with Ewan McGregor and the sequel to The Shining. Really love that movie. Uh, I, I looking forward to checking out the um, checking out the director's cut, which is coming on Blu-ray soon. Definitely gonna pick that up. Almost made it. This is probably like again, 12 or 13. I feel like my my 11 through 15 was, I'll tell you, I'll tell you in a second. Uh, Little Women from Greta Gerwig, great movie, great cast. Florence Florence Pugh had a hell of a year between this and Midsummer, and Fighting with My Family, which unfortunately I didn't see that one as I mentioned. So so hoping that somebody from this movie gets an Oscar, and it should have been Best Director nominated at least. Uh, Bombshell was fine. Star Wars, I have very mixed feelings about, which you can hear on that episode, and then. Cats, which I uh, somehow kind of quasi-enjoyed, quasi-hated. It, it's unclear. So uh, very complicated relationship with that movie, as you'll hear in a future episode. So that'll be it for the Crooked Table podcast this week. Thank you for listening to me talk about my top 10 movies of 2019. I'll probably come back with an Oscar episode, maybe after the Oscars or like right before. I have to figure out if I want to do that or how I want to do that. But um, we'll definitely pull off some kind of Oscar-related issue or, or episode and, uh, you know, to just comment on all of this. So a lot of good, uh, uh, great episodes in the can. Not in the can, but, like, again, planned. So stay tuned for those. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear us talk about in 2020 or what your favorite movie of 2019 was, let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table. Till then, catch you next time. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. 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 Z-R-O